We are the byproducts of a lifestyle obsession. We are the illegitimate children of a religious generation. We are voluntary orphans in search of a new and stylized surrogate religion. The more secular the world becomes, the more religious secularization becomes. Meaning the pubs and taverns and bars are now the secular church buildings. And soulless pop radio is the new hymnal. The spiritual disciplines of antiquity are the CrossFit of today. Uh, marathon runners are our new monks. The podcast and the TED Talk are the sermons. The professor and the internet personality are the new sermonizers. The therapist and the counselor are the pastors. The protesters and armchair activists and social justice warriors are our new missionaries. Passive-aggressive tweets are their evangelism. Amazon Prime delivers the sacraments to our doorstep in two business days, in theory. Social media is now community, and likes and follows and comments are the tithes that we lay on their altars. The, uh, the book clubs are the new Bible studies, and silence and solitude have become tantric meditation and yoga. For every drop of venom and vitriol that post-Christian culture spills in an effort to sort of blot out the bigoted and archaic danger of religion, we are a culture as religious, as mystic and spiritual as anyone before it. But even in this great shining mythical utopia of progress, with every smiling and tolerant little special snowflake changing the world in their own little way, there still lurks a boogeyman. Something is still wrong with the world. And yet, the blame can no longer be shifted toward the outdated idea of sin, um, but it has to go somewhere. And so it becomes a political party, it becomes a system, it becomes the media, it becomes them, whoever them is. And certainly there is corruption, there is systemic evil, absolutely, but each of us has identified it elsewhere in an ongoing and agonizing quest to somehow stave off this lingering sense that something is wrong with us. Something has gone wrong with humanity with a capital H, with the world. Something is wrong with us. We are created in the image of God, but the image is somehow losing its shape, like a vandalized painting, a once precise sculpture, sculpture that has begun to crumble slowly over time. We are not who we were supposed to be. And consciously or subconsciously, many of us realize this. Something in us would like very much to do something about it, to change somehow. For the follower of Jesus, that is what discipleship is all about. But how exactly? How when the church of Instagram, the church of yoga and pop culture and Amazon.com has failed us? We are currently in a series about what it means to practice the way of Jesus. And though we've only begun to wade into the waters of this small new community that we call Van City Church, I believe that we're exploring something that could shape the life of the church for years to come. Because put simply, we are discussing what it means to be a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus of Nazareth. 
When a man or a woman accepts this open invitation of Jesus of Nazareth to become his apprentice, they assume three all-encompassing life goals. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what he did. For the past few weeks, we've done a teaching on each of those three goals in the broad sense. And now we're better prepared to sort of zero in a bit on how, on the, uh, the, the how behind all of this. Because to live out what we keep calling the way of Jesus requires a transformation on our part. In fact, that is an appropriate way of summarizing all of those three goals. Transformation. That word shows up uh, repeatedly throughout the New Testament. The Greek word is metamorpho. It's where we get the English word metamorphosis. Uh, my all-time favorite novel, the novel that made me love novels and become a novelist myself, is called The Metamorphosis. Um, and in it, this traveling salesman, uh, Gregor Samsa, wakes up one morning and he finds that he's been transformed for some reason into a gigantic insect. And as you can imagine, for Gregor, it's a change for the worse. But... The point is that uh, a metamorphosis has taken place from one shape into an entirely new shape with entirely new demands and ramifications on our lives. That is what transformation means. And most of us are not there yet. Um, Frustratingly, many of us, I think, feel stuck somewhere along the way to transformation. We're mired in the emotional trauma of our pasts. Of, or of our families. We're, we're bogged in addiction, whether it's addiction to pornography or to alcohol or to pot or, or for more of us, I think, addicted to a phone or an application, an app, they call them nowadays, the kids. I'll say no one said application in 15 years. Um, we've sort of stagnated in patterns of either busyness or laziness. We can't slow down or we can't get going. Uh, We've stagnated in patterns of relational dysfunction, anger, passive aggressiveness, resentment, anxiety, depression. And for many of us who have stalled along the way, it isn't that we've done so because we want to. It isn't that we'd like to remain stuck. In fact, most of us want to change. Many of us are even trying to change, but we don't know how. In my personal estimation, many of us stall out along the way because we fail to understand the part that we play in our own spiritual formation. Yes, absolutely, God plays a role, and we have a role to play as well. God has a responsibility, and we have a responsibility in our spiritual formation. So a few weeks ago, we began to work through two paradigms for this idea of spiritual formation. Spiritual formation, if you recall, is a process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. But spiritual formation is not a uniquely Christian concept. We are all being formed and shaped every single day. Every one of you is becoming someone over time. And in the inevitable human sense, it unfolds this way. We're all being formed by the stories that we believe. We're being formed by our habits, the thing that we do throughout every day and every week. We're being formed by our relationships, by our environment. And all of that transpires over the span of unfolding time and through our experiences, for better or for worse. Now, in order to deliberately counter this inevitable sort of formation, the disciple of Jesus employs a unique and deliberate method of counterformation. 
Rather than stories that we believe, we seek to be formed by teaching. Rather than habits, we use practice or the spiritual disciplines. Rather than relationships, we use community, which is different. Rather than simply the environment that we're stuck in, we're being shaped all along by the Holy Spirit. Now, the plan for this month is to work our way through this paradigm in depth because this is too important to sort of glance over and slide one evening and then move on. Um, In January, the plan is to begin the practices of Jesus together in our Van City communities using a guided curriculum. But before we get there, I'd like to try and lay a, a sort of foundation which we can then build upon. So let's begin at the top of this chart this evening with teaching and then practice. So if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. When this man called Jesus of Nazareth is referred to by other people in the New Testament, he's most often called rabbi or teacher. Of course, we, his disciples, we recognize him also as the Messiah or the long-awaited king of Israel that was spoken of by the prophets, the one who would defeat evil once and for all and restore the goodness of God's world. We also know him to be God himself, what in theology is called the incarnation of Yahweh as a human being, uh, what the scriptures call the Son of God. But for most of the people who interacted with Jesus in the first century, for the Jewish fishermen, or for someone who was sitting in the synagogue on the Sabbath, Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. Um, Of the 90 or so times people talk to Jesus in the gospel, he's called teacher about 60 of them, so the majority. And I'm emphasizing this fact because in the Western world, in particular in America, the church has been marked by this radical polarization between the theological left and the theological right, or those who are theologically liberal and those who are theologically conservative. And what that means is that about a century ago, there was this split between the right or the left as the liberals began to emphasize the humanity of Jesus and the conservatives reacted defensively and emphasized the divinity of Jesus. And the liberals shouted, Jesus was a teacher. And the conservatives fired back, Jesus was the son of God. And who was right? Yeah, absolutely. Both were absolutely correct. But many of us who have grown up in or around the church have done so in the wake of this great polarization. Meaning, if you grew up within the conservative arm of the church, which I suspect is is probably a bunch of us, chances are you may have heard a great deal said about Jesus the Son of God and perhaps very little about Jesus the teacher. And as a result, some of us think of Jesus as powerful, for sure. Yeah, he did crazy stuff. Mystical and profound, yes, that sounds like Jesus. Um, Divine, absolutely, first and foremost, you know. But an intelligent and gifted philosopher and teacher and trainer, maybe less so. And yet Jesus was the most intelligent teacher to ever live. Not a self-help guru, not a wise sage that was full of sort of fortune cookie proverbs. He, he was not a TED Talk whiz with personality tests and, and workflow efficiency. Jesus taught the best way to be a human being. And he did so within this greater idea of what he called the kingdom of God. So let's read one biographer of Jesus summarize his message with a single line. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And Jesus said, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent 
and believe the good news. The central theme of all of Jesus' teaching was the kingdom of God. He talked about it more than any other thing. The inbreaking rule and reign of God over the world. And Jesus' invitation, the response he was looking for, was, according to the text, to, quote, repent and believe, end quote. And that word repent is metanoeo in Greek. It, it More literally, it means to change your mind. Uh, one lexicon puts it this way, to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude in regard to sin and righteousness. We might understand the word to refer to the rethinking of our lives from the ground up around this alternate idea of the kingdom of God. Author Mark Scandretti paraphrases Mark uh, 1, 14 and 15 like this. Dream up your whole life again because there is a new way to be human. And this is my first point. Reimagining is the first step toward transformation. Teaching takes aim first and foremost at the mind and the imagination. And remember, this is intended to counter the stories that we believe. That is the wonderful, subversive power of Jesus. Teaching, when it's done well, permeates your consciousness with a vision of a better life. Teaching draws attention to the stories that you believe and it identifies them as lies. That narrative that you've bought into, it's not true. That script out of which you live, it's not good. Here is a better one. But this takes time. And here's what I mean. According to Paul, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, there's that word, by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The first step towards transformation is the renewing of your mind. In fact, when you read Paul, it seems evident that he is obsessed with the way that we think. In 1 Corinthians, he writes, we have the mind of Christ. He says, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Set your minds on things above. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And don't think for a moment that I do not have a Dallas Willard quote prepared this evening. I do. Um, Dallas Willard puts it this way. My, are you trying to mess with me? You don't want me to have my Dallas Willard quote? <laughs> the process of spiritual formation in Christ is one of progressively replacing destructive images and ideas with the images and ideas that filled the mind of Jesus himself. Spiritual formation in Christ moved towards a total interchange of our ideas and images for his. We are learning to think Jesus' thoughts. What Paul and what Dallas Willard are both arguing for is the idea that neuroscience today refers to as neuroplasticity. Hang in, hang in there with me for a second. This is, this is going to be good, I promise. Um, this is based on this scientific premise called Hebb's axiom, which states that neurons that fire together, wire together, you know, if you like the rhyme to help you learn. Here's an explanation of that idea from Dr. Kurt Thomas. Neurons that repeatedly activate in a particular pattern are statistically more likely to fire in that same pattern the more they are activated. 
Once the initial neurons in a network fire, there is a very high probability that the related neurons will also activate and move along the same bioelectrical pathway to the end of that network. The more frequently those patterns have been fired, the most easily they will fire in that same pattern in the future. That's why you may immediately recall the ingredients and steps to preparing spaghetti, which you make every week, but need to consult the cookbook when preparing a holiday dish you haven't made in years. Or, if you prefer an analogy and you don't like reading about neurons and bioelectrical currents, um, I read it this way, uh, or described this way just earlier this morning. So imagine that the billions of synapses in your brain, those junctions between nerve cells, uh, imagine them as this dense and complicated jungle. And you're sort of traversing this complex and dangerous jungle with a machete. And that machete is your thought life, or the kinds of things that you meditate on, that you imagine, that you fill your mind with every single day. Now, as you think, you are hacking a trail through this jungle. Thinking the same way repeatedly is like doing extra work to clear a particular area of the trail. The more you think it, the clearer the trail becomes, and the easier it is to go along that same route again. Now, as you hike this jungle again and again and again, you will arrive repeatedly at an area that has been thoroughly cleared. And you will always take this route without hesitation, even if it's the more dangerous route. Now, it logically follows that we've learned from science, what we've learned from science about neuromapping is both good and bad, right? It's good, for example, that I can remember my children's names without having to think about it beforehand. I also have, uh, be impressed, I have this lengthy index of their personality traits and quirks and likes and dislikes, and I don't even have to think about it. It's amazing. Um, this has been mapped out in time in my brain. It's bad, on the other hand, that I am often stuck in patterns of thinking and behavior that are toxic, are emotionally unhealthy, uh, destructive to both myself and the people around me, and these patterns I've also mapped out in my brain. For this very reason, I insist that we spend a tremendous amount of time reading the scriptures, listening to teaching every single week, podcast, books, study, to rewire the brain, to forge a new trail through that jungle, if you like, a significant amount of time and effort is required. But it can be done. So teaching, when it's done well, does more than simply rewire our brains on a neurological level. It fills our minds and our imaginations with a vision of what life could be like, or what Jesus called life to the fullest. There are several methods of going about this work of rewiring your brain and stirring your imagination in the process. Here are just five of them. Number one is read the Bible. Pretty simple, right? Um, I don't mean to retread everything we've said again and again throughout the year of biblical literacy, but when I say read the Bible, I do not mean simply read, you know, a daily verse feed and then Jesus calling or whatever you have there on your coffee table. Uh, I mean reading through the entire sweep of scripture. Read the entire Bible through, you know, a year-long plan, if you like. Some of you, I know, are currently still doing that. You've almost made it. More power to you. Or, you know, Katie. Where's Katie? Are you in here? Katie? Oh, yeah. She does two. Two reading plans concurrently. It started as a mistake, and then she just embraced it. Um, you don't have to be like Katie. You can just do one Bible reading plan. Uh, read entire books of the Bible in one sitting. Some of those guys are pretty dang short. You'd be surprised. Uh, read chronologically. Read thematically. Read in depth. Study. Meditate. Memorize. Pray through the text word by word, line by line. Open your heart and mind to the Spirit as you read. 
Second, read books in general. Just read books, man. I like to read quite a bit. Ideally, you know, at least a book every week. More if I have time or if the book is incredible, you know, then it's just like hours or whatever. Novels, uh, for me personally, are my first love. I also like to read a ton of Bible and theology uh, that I have to do for school and work or whatever. Uh, but I would argue that both fiction and nonfiction are very important. I'm a tad shocked when I meet pastors who say they brag about never reading fiction. But fiction, I would argue, is crucial in developing the imagination and understanding the concept of narrative and story, which is crucial in understanding the Bible itself, uh, in building empathy and practicing emotional experiences across a spectrum and growing the mind. I mean, for goodness sake, Jesus himself used fictional parables as his primary teaching tool. Um, and so, Many of the academic or pastoral, pastoral or intellectual folks that I know, they, they sort of treat fiction as it's somehow beneath them or it's just shallow entertainment. And I'm not just saying this uh, because I like to read and write novels. You don't have to read mine or anything, but read fiction from time to time, not young adult fiction. It doesn't count. You get no marks for it whatsoever. If you must, read also grown-up books as well. On the other hand... <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry if I offended anyone with young adult fiction. Go ahead, knock it, go crazy. Um, on the other hand, a lot of voracious readers that I know behave as though, you know, an academic or a nonfiction book it, that doesn't thrill them in the same way that a novel does, uh, that they're not willing to give this the time of day. What I'm saying is read books. Read all sorts of books. Read outside of your understanding and experience. Try new things. If you're not an avid reader now, get started. Pick two books. This is my suggestion. Go to the library down the road. I never know where I'm pointing. I have the worst directional mind in the world. Sometimes it's this, like this. If I, I'll do it like, yeah, down there, and Abby will take my hand and be like, this one. Um, wherever the library is, it's a, quite a library, guys. Go check it out. It's wonderful. You can spend hours in that thing. Go to the library. Pick two books. Go off the covers, if you must. Sometimes that's fun. Um, pick two books, one fiction and one nonfiction about the Bible, theology, spirituality, whatever. Divide the number of pages across the span of three or four weeks, if you're just getting started, um, and then read the necessary number of pages every day to finish those books on time. Next month, you're done with them. Get two more books from the library and start over again. And then maybe speed up the process a little bit because that's too long to, to take reading those books. So read the books, um, read the Bible, read books in general. And then next, sit under teaching, in, in particular at a church. And I know it seems a bit weird for me to say, but as a believer in the craft, divorcing myself from it, I would argue that sitting under a teacher of the Bible and the way of Jesus is one of the best ways to be transformed by the renewing of your mind in particular. It was for this reason that I wanted to become a teacher myself. I won't harp on that anymore since, you know, it's me saying it. Next, um, podcast. It is 2016 after all. And if you haven't been scared away from technology all the way yet, use it to your advantage. Uh, Listen to a teacher beyond your own church and, and maybe your own city and state and even country. Um, I regularly podcast a, a gentleman that I like quite a bit out in Minnesota who's a pastor and theologian. I have this other gentleman who does this like tough questions in theology 
uh, in the Bible with these little blips. Listen to that regularly. Um, I also regularly listen to this podcast from one of my favorite novelists who does sort of cultural critiques and assessments through the lens of film and literature. So listen to gifted teachers and thinkers who enable you to think well, even if it's sort of outside of your spectrum and lens. And finally, seek out a mentor, someone who is either older or wiser or simply more experienced and mature that you, than you are now. It could be a friend, it could be a pastor, it could be an elder, it could be a professor or a teacher. Find a mentor. If you can't find a living or near, nearby mentor, then find a far-off one or a dead one. Uh, by reading, obviously. I don't mean to like conjure them up or anything. By reading. I have, uh, I've absolutely been mentored by authors and thinkers whom I've never met, met by sitting under their teaching and thinking and writing for years and years and years, consuming everything that I can get my hands on until I think of myself as one of their disciples and then one of my teachers. Dallas Willard, for example, if it's not evident by the quotes, has been a huge mentor throughout my development and thinking in this particular series and is no longer living and thus never in my immediate presence. And still I think of him as a mentor of sorts. But even without an inspiring elder or a favorite author, we can absolutely speak truth to and over one another in the context of community. Together, with all our weaknesses and immaturity out in the open, speaking truth and life to and over one another again and again and again. What I'm getting at is that filling your mind with teaching, with the truth, is the first step in your transformation, whether it's by church or a Bible, or a book, or a podcast, or a seminary class. It's all part of that first step, but it isn't the last step in transformation. Which is interesting, given the fact that so many of us sort of stop there. Uh, I go to church, and I read the Bible, shouldn't I be transformed by now? And then we stand back and wonder, why is it that we aren't transformed? And I would argue that there are two reasons. The first is pretty ordinary, and it's just memory retention. Even when we consume a ton of information, we can't possibly remember all of it. Um, William Glasser theorizes that our memory retention might break down thusly. He argues that we probably remember 100%, or 100, geez, so optimistic tonight. Usually I'm a pessimist. 10% um, of what we read, that's depressing, right? 20% of what we hear, 30% of what we see. We remember 50% of what we both hear and see. 70% of what is discussed with others, 80% of what we experience personally, and 95% of what we teach someone else. That to say, you might remember 50% of this teaching. Best case scenario. Which is a bummer for me, personally. Um, <laughs> that is why uh, education is built around the concept of repetition. Repetition is the key to learning. But memory retention is only one reason that teaching alone will not move us entirely into transformation. The second reason is that you cannot think your way to Christ-likeness. Imagine that you're some prodigy. You have a photographic memory. You're able to recall this teaching in its entirety tomorrow morning. Morning, It will not be enough to transform you. Even if for some reason you find me very inspiring uh, in an unprecedented way, you remember all of it, Monday morning is still coming. And I mean, how many of us um, have been inspired on a Sunday evening, whether it's the teaching or the Spirit spoke in some powerful way or someone spoke prophetically over us, and then the following week we find ourselves returned to those old destructive patterns and habits and ways of thinking. 
because your knowledge isn't the problem. Most of you, or at least many of you, have the correct information. You just love the wrong things. Because knowing something is not the same as doing it, which is not the same as wanting to do it. Uh, I haven't personally eaten meat in uh, years, not, a, a, not even a little bit. And as long as I've been a vegetarian, I've set out to only buy and consume uh, the you know, animal stuff, dairy, basically, that I buy from uh, ethical, humane, local farms and resources. Now, I would rather, personally, just go the extra step and be a vegan completely. I've read a stack of books. I've listened to lectures. I've watched documentaries. I have all this information I need to get there. And, and Frank, me personally, you don't have to be. Don't get all upset with me. Me personally, um, I would like to. I believe in it. I'm on board. But you know what I love more than that information? No, man. Ice cream, man. Freaking ice cream, man. No, cheese can get bent. Cheese, get out of here. That's gross. You guys eat that stuff? Nasty. Um, now I've just turned everyone against me. They, you've all gone from, the, you know, 10% at best of this teaching to five or three. Listen. <laughs> what? <laughs> just like that, cheese. What? He doesn't like cheese? What? <laughs> What we love in our hearts influences us with more authority than what we know in our heads across the board. Uh, I understand completely that sugar is bad for you. Um, I understand completely that, and, and experientially that not enough sleep is also bad for me. Uh, that procrastination never works out for me personally. Why do I still do those things? Because I love sugar. Um, because I love staying up late, especially if anything remotely interesting is happening, and I love putting things off. So if that's the case, then how do we change? Even with all the right information, how do we actually change? That is why after teaching comes practice. So do me a favor, open your Bibles back up one more time. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. In the story, Matthew, the author, has just presented this collection of Jesus' most famous and important teachings. And then Jesus himself concludes this collection of teachings we often call the Sermon on the Mount by saying this, Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the stream rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. This, of course, isn't the only time Jesus emphasizes the importance of practice. Elsewhere, he says, My mother and brothers, my family, are those who hear God's word, and put it into practice. Later, he says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. <laughs> or I think of James, who summarizes the, important, the entire point this way. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've learned, 
but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. The authors of the New Testament emphasize this point again and again and again. Teaching must lead to practice. And by practice, I mean three things. First, practices based on the lifestyle of Jesus, the things that we saw and read Jesus do, uh, what we now often call the spiritual discipline, silence and solitude, prayer and fasting, reading the scriptures, and so on. Next, there are the practices based on the teachings of Jesus, which is like love your enemies, uh, rid, ridding ourselves of anxiety and worry, the way that we handle our money and do generosity and so on. And finally, practices based on the work and mission of Jesus, preaching the gospel, teaching the way, healing the sick, and on down the list. Now, there's a great deal more to be said here, but we'll wait for next week and we'll dig deep into the spiritual disciplines, which I believe are the non-negotiable essential pathway to formation. So if you can, please be here next week. It's going to have a huge impact on our church and your Van City communities in particular. For now, I want to sort of continue to paint with broad strokes as we talk about what practice does to us. Remember, we've said throughout this series that practice is meant to counter our habits because the things that we do do something to us for better or for worse. We are little more than the cumulative effect of our daily and weekly habits. What we do on a regular basis, we become eventually. Because, and listen to me on this, your habits as an ordinary human and your practices as a disciple of Jesus get into you. And interestingly, they get into you not through your uh, prefrontal cortex, but through your limbic system, or, or put another way, not through your thinking brain, but through your emotional brain. That means that your habits, unlike teaching, they don't go through the mind and the imagination. Your habits go through what the authors of the scriptures call the heart. One philosopher describes the heart this way. It is the fulcrum of your most fundamental longings, a visceral subconscious orientation to the world. Put simply, the heart is the director of your loves. If you are a human being, you love. To be human is to love. We cannot avoid love. It is the great source of agony and ecstasy for all the world, our comedy and our tragedy. You all love something. That much is not in question. The question is, what do you love? Here is another thought from Jamie Smith. To be human, we could say, is to desire the kingdom, some kingdom. To be human is to be animated and oriented by some vision of the good life, some picture of what we think counts as flourishing. And we want that. We crave it. We desire it. That is why our most fundamental mode of orientation to the world is love. Your heart is like an engine that compels you towards some vision of a life well-lived, accurate or inaccurate. He goes on to say this very long thing. <laughs> Because we are what we want, our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. Thus, Scripture counsels, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. 
Discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all, a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. What Smith is getting at is that one of the primary tasks of discipleship is learning a methodology of curating your heart. Or put another way, how to point our loves in the proper direction when they do not do so naturally. Our problem is not that we don't love, it's that we love the wrong things. Our our hearts wander. Uh, The heart is deceitful above all things. The needle of the compass compass becomes uh, untrustworthy and it requires recalibration again and again. Thus, teaching and practice go hand in hand. Teaching fills your mind and your imagination with a vision of a life well lived, which is itself not enough. So, in steps practice to forge new habits that shape our love, that we might love that vision with which we have filled our minds. Let's use the analogy of shopping, of consumerism. The more that you buy, the more that you want. We all know this, right? It's a simple prid quo pro. Uh, Eventually, the things we own end up owning us. And strangely, the hunger for more things is stewarded, not satisfied, by acquiring said things. It's like attempting to stop a fire with gasoline. So bad news for shopping, but great news for practicing the way of Jesus because through counterformation or practicing the way, We can curate our hearts so that we no longer want to shop and thus step out of this recursive loop of consumerism. The void that shopping creates and maintains is no longer of any noteworthy concern because we redirect our love and desire. So here is a practice for the coming week. It's called a a liturgical audit. It means that you take an inventory of your rhythms, your routines, your rituals, the things that make up your life. You write them all down. You can do this uh, in the moment over time. It's the way that uh, I've done it uh, even recently where basically every few hours, you know, I have an Evernote open. I'm like, oh, I did these things. It's a little easier for me because of the attention deficit that I have going. Maybe you can just at the end of the week write it all down. But we all know that memory is not reliable, right? We just talked about that. Um, So make up the list of the things that you do regularly, either all at once or uh, at the end of the week in real time, whatever. But be honest. No one has to read it but you if that helps, meaning if it's an honest thing to say, oh, I spent hours every single day on Instagram, just write it down and put it on the list for now. You can be ashamed in private. Um, Doesn't do any good to lie about it. Uh, When that list is completed, stop and examine it item by item and imagine what each of these things is doing to you. What are these things doing to your heart? Some things, I suspect, will probably be good. Others predictably less so. Perhaps some of those things you will see immediately need to be removed from your list altogether. Uh, Maybe some other things need to be removed for a season or indefinitely. And in order to take on the practices of Jesus, the spiritual disciplines, you will almost certainly need to make room on that list in some way, shape, or form. Beginning in January, we will take on a practice of Jesus together as a church 
about every two months or so, meaning we'll teach on it here on Sunday, and then we will go and work it out in our Van City communities with curriculum and discussion and accountability, and above all else, with practice in the context of that community. Because the way of Jesus is just that. It's a way, a way of living. Long before outsiders called this thing Christianity, disciples of Jesus themselves called it the way. I love that. And yet our churches look and function so much more like a lecture hall than a training center for practicing the way of Jesus. And we would like to do something about that at our church. How dull would Batman Begins be if Bruce Wayne scales the mountains of Bhutan and he arrives at the League of Shadows and he drinks coffee and he listens to a sermon, you know, from Ra's al Ghul and, and then he goes back to Gotham. He's like, that was good. Uh, everyone knows that the best uh, moment in any Rocky movie is the training montage, right? Um, you don't know that? Well, start at the beginning and work your way through. You will not regret it. In fact, put that on the list. Put that on the list. Um, and it sounds silly, but the metaphor works. We want our church to become a community built on training in the way of Jesus, not just a lecture hall with coffee and music. Because as a church, I believe a great deal of us want to change to become like Jesus. Um, I think we probably ache for it. We, there are probably few things we actually want. Deep, deepest part, truest part of who we are, we want to grow and mature and become the sort of people God intended us to be. I do. I, I assume I'm not alone in that. Of course, that won't happen simply by showing up to church, although that is an excellent place to start. Don't stop doing that. Um, in fact, you never graduate from your need to do that, whether you're beginning, a novice, or, or an expert in the way of Jesus. Coming to church is always part of the way. But if that's all you do, you'll never be transformed. You have to actually begin practicing the way of Jesus together. With that in mind, uh, let's pray and ask the Spirit to show up.